Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hi everybody, welcome to Scattered and our first edition of 2022. And we realised in the week that we have been doing Scattered for a year. <clears throat> so let's go. Helen is kindly leading this week on this chapter. So over to you, Hermione. We should not be afraid of chapters like this, right? Right. Can't wait. (laughs) Okay, guys, let's go for it. Chapter 38, the chapter we thought we'd all escaped. Let's do it. Thanks, Daniel. Um, Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Anyway, Genesis chapter 38. Can someone, Mary, give a summary of the chapter and then put it into the context of the wider story of Joseph? Thank you. Well, I was going to do the opposite. I was going to say it comes just after Joseph has been packed off to Egypt by his brothers. In in fact, Judah himself was the one that suggested that Joseph be sold. Um, And he was. And then the Midianites have sold Joseph to Potiphar. So that's the end of chapter 37. And then we come to 38, which kind of feels a bit random, doesn't it? So we've got this story of what's happening with Judah uh, while, I guess, Joseph is in Egypt. And I mean, it's quite a long time, isn't it? Because we see Judah has children and then is marrying them off. Judah, it says in verse one, left his brothers. So he leaves his brothers. um, He gets married. He has children. He has three sons. The first one who is called, uh, which I like. And one of them is called Sheila as well. I like that too. He marries Ur to Tamar. Er's very wicked. God kills him off. Then he does the right thing, which is to then give Tamar to his second son, who is Onan. He is meant to fulfill his duty to her, which means give her a son, which can then carry on his brother's name. Um, Unfortunately, Onan doesn't want to do that. And he comes up with a way of making sure that she doesn't get pregnant. And then God obviously sees that and puts him to death as well. Judah doesn't know what to do. So he doesn't want to lose his third son. He obviously thinks there's something wrong with Tamar. Um, So he sends Tamar back to her father's house and basically, I think, hopes that the problem will just go away. It doesn't. Tamar realizes that Judah's not going to give his third son to her. So she comes up with her own way of getting an heir, which is to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her. She does this by... Uh, disguising herself as a prostitute and then uh, she gets pregnant Judah realizes and hears that she's pregnant gets super mad and says right we're gonna burn her she when she was with Judah when Judah came to her he had given her these three things which were very personal to him basically like giving her his ID card and so she comes to him and is like you are the father of my child Judah's like oh whoops and then he brings her into his household she has these babies she doesn't she's she's kind of I guess married to him but I don't think he's with her in a sense of like making more babies but she has these two twins at the end one of whom is Perez who we know his line is the line of Jesus the end lovely story beautiful and then (laughs) the next chapter that comes in is the one where Joseph has his encounter with Potiphar's wife um Mm. so yeah just to quickly talk about the two major characters what do we know I mean Mary said some of it there but what do we know about Tamar and what do we know about Judah 
up to this point? Like, what do we learn about them in Genesis 38? But also, what do we know about Judah in general? I guess Judah was really um, central in the selling of Joseph, wasn't he? And in the deceiving of his father. And so, yeah, I thought that was an, that was an interesting theme, that just as, Ju- just as Jacob deceived um, his father to get the birthright, and then Judah deceives Jacob, here we see then Jacob being on the receiving end of, an, of a, another deception. Um, so yeah, there's the sort of those three deceptions, which um, are all mirrors of each other in this chapter. But yeah, I, I guess Judah's the encouragement in some ways in this chapter, because I guess we see here the beginning of him changing, because he's been bad news up to this point, um, and his humiliation here um, is the start of his change, because then it's the same Judah, isn't it, that we see amazingly standing in the gap for Benjamin. I think it's significant isn't it that Judah in verse one it says Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira so I wondered here I think it's interesting isn't it we're talking about context we know that Joseph has gone to Egypt um, and now Judah is kind of mixing and literally mixing with the Canaanites and I just think it sets us up doesn't it for what we've talked about before because we know that things gradually for Judah basically he goes a bit off the rails doesn't he as you know because we know throughout the Old Testament God doesn't want the Israelites to mix with the other nations not because he necessarily doesn't like them I mean they're not great we know that their practices weren't great but also because it it affects the holiness of his people and we can see that at, at play here can't we and so we know that's in the context of Joseph going to Egypt is he also going to fall for the uh, attraction and the pleasures of Egypt in the same way as Judah obviously does here? Um, there's a weakness here, isn't there, that we see that perhaps Joseph doesn't have. It was written in verse 2 that he saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite and then he took her and went into her. And it's the seeing and taking, that the, the lure of sin. It's like the same words that were used Um, earlier in Genesis when Eve saw the fruit and then she took it and so it's like a reminder that actually what he's doing here isn't right and he's not listening to the messages that were given to Abraham and Isaac about remaining separate. Great and what do we know about Tamar at the beginning of this chapter who is she? Now I see why nobody was talking about Tamar. I guess she's a Canaanite isn't she so she's a foreign woman. Well I don't know is Mm. she? In my commentaries, I was like, we don't actually know. Or do you know, Helen, did you read differently? I didn't look that up particularly, but uh, the assumption in all the things that I read was that she was a Canaanite or not not an Israelite. So Tamar was given to Onan in marriage. Mary mentioned it earlier. It's called a leveret marriage where... If a man dies before he had a child, his brother would have to marry his wife and their first child would carry on the dead brother's name and place in the lineage. But Onan refused, basically, to get Tamar pregnant. What Mm. do you think about that? Why do you think he would do that? Well, it has consequences on himself, doesn't it? If she bore a son, then actually the inheritance that he gets would have to be shared with um, her son. And and so you can see 
Like that's a potential motive that he has. I guess God works in families, doesn't he? And actually there's a big responsibility on him to think family first rather than his own needs or his own offspring first. And he's just not prepared to do that, is he? He's not prepared to see the importance of the line Mm -hmm. and the family which is a massive theme in the whole of Genesis, isn't it? Right from the promises that God made to Abraham, um, that, you know, it's God's people that's the big important thing. And Onan's not interested in that, is he? He just is, yeah, Mm. selfish. And also I read that he could decline the leveret Mm. marriage. And so in Deuteronomy 25, you can actually... um, say yeah I don't want to do it but you get publicly shamed and Tamar's allowed to spit in his face so I guess he was not wanting that not wanting his reputation to be damaged as well as not wanting to share the inheritance. You know Onan actually missed out on his opportunity to be a part of the lineage of Christ (laughs) when he was trying to protect his family he thought he was doing what was right by sort of fudging what God's law said and he was doing it half heart you know he was half fulfilling it or thought oh this will be good enough but in protecting himself he missed out on a massive opportunity Um, and I think the other thing that struck me was how this was a reflection of how often power treats those who are in more vulnerable situations Tamar was an incredibly vulnerable woman we know that from when we looked at Ruth you know a single foreigner in this land, um, alone, no husband, nothing to, nobody to support her. Tamar's effectively in the same situation, you know, potentially going to be in the same situation if she doesn't get given to Onan. And, and so he sort of <coughs> takes her on, has sex with her, but, and so gets that reputation thing, gets what he wants, but doesn't actually fulfill his duty um, just so to make himself look good. yeah it was it was interesting to me uh, the power situation with Onan there. For Tamar it must have been incredibly shameful and degrading Um, I just think it must have felt so horrible to know that someone would use you know your body in that way but wouldn't give you the thing that you need. And that's awful isn't it the position she's left in at the end of this section where she's been abused and she's supposed to be given over to the third son after her, the second son has died. She's supposed to be given to the third. She's not. She's sent back to her father's house in shame and disgrace. Um, childless, husbandless. I mean, the vulnerability that she's been put into because of Judah's sin is quite extreme. But I, I guess it is worth saying, isn't it, that God judged Onan like Onan didn't get away with that you know that that sort of like Juliet said he wanted didn't want the public shame and he thought that his sin in secret would stay secret but it's so good for us isn't it and any woman that's feeling abused in that way God sees and the judgment on Onan was immediate and severe and so you know there is some comfort there isn't it in those really hard secret situations that aren't seen God sees the truth and he will judge rightly. Let's look at verses 12 to 23 now. So let's quickly talk about the sheep shearing thing because I know you're going to say, wah, 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 Hermione, wah, wah, wah. but actually, it does teach us quite a lot about Israel uh, and the state that they're in. 
Mary, would you care to elaborate? Um, I didn't have an answer for this one. Go on, Juliet, take it away. Anyone else? It's fine if you don't. So I'm just going to read verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adullamite. So context here, Judah's wife has died. Then this sheep shearing festival, basically it was a huge festival that happened. And uh, it's a time when sexual temptation would be sort of sharpened and enhanced by the Canaanite cult. So it was a time when um, they would do sort of ritual sexual practices as for fertility magic basically to get good harvests that's what they would do they would go to the fields and have orgies um so that is what judah is going to his wife has died and he's like okay i'm i'm i've mourned her now i'm gonna go and get involved in orgies in this land that's the context of him going up so Mm. it's not like he's going to go and help his mate He's going with his friend who is also not an Israelite and clearly a bad influence if he's inviting him up to do sheep shearing with these horrific sexual orgies. Um, And that's the context of when he leaves and what Tamar recognizes as an opportunity. Mm, And I think it just speaks to the state that Judah slash Israel are in and also the environment that Joseph grew up in. This is, this is the kind of place that Joseph grew up. And isn't it amazing that despite that, God worked in him and he was as faithful to God and to Potiphar, as we see in the next chapter, you know, the contrast here between Judah's sexual sin and temptation versus the next chapter with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's really stark when you understand the context of the sheep shearing festival and what it was that Judah was going to do. Also in these chapters, why do you think Tamar is so persistent in her pursuit of her right to continue the family line? Like, why does she do this, this thing, basically? I was really wrestling with this because her behaviour is not what you'd recommend, is it, to your daughters? And... I was like, oh, this reminds me of the whole Ruth scenario. And, you know, we massively debated the morality of Ruth's actions um, in going and lying in the field with Boaz. But I think the thing that struck me was she, she'd been brought into God's people, hadn't she, Tamar, in, into Judah's family. And then she sent out back to the, her Canaanite family. And I think she really saw way better than her husband's the importance in God's family of offspring and the line and how that's such a big theme all God's promises are to be fulfilled to his people through that people um growing and there being that eventually perfect offspring and so I think she sees this with a clarity that Judah's sons don't see and she is almost like a woman like she's totally focused isn't she on there needs to be an offspring here that's that's the deal that's God's um purpose and she's prepared to go to any lengths and the risks are high that she takes to bring herself back into God's people and God's family but also she sees that that's the promise that um God's made and how important that is yeah the other thing 
I noticed was how all through Genesis, there's this different deceptions, aren't there? So here, Tamar deceives Judah, just as Judah had previously deceived Jacob to Joseph's death by bringing a cloak and a goat, isn't it, that time? And then this time, it's also some of his belongings and a goat. Then previously, Jacob deceived Isaac, and then Jacob himself was deceived by Laban. And there's so much of this deception, isn't there? But through it all, it's incredible that God has, his plan has not been stopped by any of this. And instead, you know, he's using all of these different situations to eventually bring out the means of salvation for all of us. And I just find that such an encouragement that God can use such broken people and such messy situations to bring about his good plan. And, and just here, it seems like Tamar was, you know, had been thinking, had been looking for an opportunity because once she heard, she was so decisive. She knew what she had to do and she knew what she had to ask for when Judah was there. And it seems like, like she'd been thinking about this for a long time coming. And I think I just want to quickly say at this point that, again, Genesis, the writer of Genesis, doesn't make any moral points about what Tamar did. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us would encourage our daughters <laughs> to participate in this. But what, what's really interesting is every other time she's mentioned in the whole of the scriptures, she's praised. Yeah, exactly. I was really <laughs> wrestling with this last night with Jumpy and saying... Is it that she's obsessed with having a baby and so makes all these bad mistakes? Because you could read it that way, couldn't you? She puts herself in such a vulnerable position because she's obsessed with having a baby. Don't be like her. What are you obsessed with this year? Um, don't do that. Or, and Jumpy was like, you can't say that because every other place in the Bible, she's praised. And so I was like, oh, I needed to look at it again and think, okay, what is it that motivates her then? receive such high praise throughout the rest of the scriptures the end okay. of Ruth, um the ladies pray that um ruth would be even more blessed than tamar was um mm. and she's included in the lineages of jesus yeah. in matthew and luke she's named when a lot of people aren't named yeah like mm. in one of them sarah's not mentioned you know like big People that we would say are women of the faith are not mentioned, but Tamar is. Um, I, I wonder if some of it is, you know, we talked about the Leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25. I wonder if some of it is her really holding on to God's promises. You know, this thing in Deuteronomy 25, the Leveret marriage, was a promise from God to protect vulnerable widow, young widows. Um, and this is how the line should continue. And you know, Judah is blaming Tamar for effectively blaming Tamar for the death of his first two sons. And so trying to protect his third, but actually it's their sin that killed them, you know? Um, and so I just wonder if she sees the injustice, sees that it's her God ordained right to be the one who provides the heir to the line um, of David and Jesus. Um, and so that's why she's so persistent and that's why she's driven to the lengths that she is. I, I don't know. Um, it was a huge risk, though, wasn't it, what she did? Because 
number one, he easily, when it's found out what she's done, he easily could have still killed her in the sense that he, you know, to try and hide what he'd done. And also, like, it had to be at a time when she could get pregnant. Maybe she wouldn't have got pregnant from it. And I don't I don't know what she would have done then. But it just, to me, it, the whole thing felt very risky what she did. And yet I feel like in some way God blessed her risk, um, even though, yeah, like we're saying, it doesn't feel right what she did, but God blessed her in it, didn't he? He even gave her twins. Um, so in the sense that she might not have primarily wanted children for the sake of having children, she ends up with two. Mm. Yeah, we've talked quite a lot about what Tamar's done in this little section, but what about Judah's actions when he um, goes to her at the temple? What What's the significance of what he does? Well, their, their identity... Um, uh, like an identity card, I guess. Like there are special items that can um, that show who he is, and it's interesting that he's so uh, happy to just give them up, <laughs> just like that, for this intimate moment. Yeah, like he, he's just so foolish, isn't he? And yeah, this one of the commentaries I read said he's just despicable, and I was like, I like that word, like. He's just so low here, isn't he? Like as low as you can go. He's so driven sexually that he'll give away all his identity things. And yeah. And then knows knows how low he's gone because then doesn't want to be seen going back with the goat. So sends his friend because he's shamed and embarrassed. And then whatever the line is about when they, when they can't find her and he's like, oh, let's just leave this because otherwise we're going to be the laughing stock. So he, he knows, doesn't he, that he's stooped pretty low and he just wants to distance himself from it. It also <clears throat> made me think that, you know, how quick, um, like Esau giving up his birthright for a bowl of soup, you know, there's all these instances, isn't there, of temptation leading people to give up on things like even Eve, it reminded me of Eve, devil sort of tempting her towards thinking that God is less than he promised to be. And she took took on that temptation. And so she lost, she lost who she was. She was unashamed in the Garden of Eden and then became a sinful, shamed person who was outside that garden. And yeah, just, and I guess, if we look at ourselves, like how often we give up on our identity or give up on things that <clears throat> excuse me, God has given us or God has made us just for things that will not last. And yeah, it really made me dwell on that for quite a while. At first I was really angry with Judah and then I was like, hang on a second. Usually when I'm reacting this badly, it means that there is me somewhere in this story <laughs> and I'm not normally the righteous one with that in mind about the awfulness of what has just happened in let's move on to verses 24 onwards uh what happens here and what what can we how can we see the beginnings of the change in Judah that we see in later chapters of Genesis I guess Judah's informed isn't he that um she has had sex and is pregnant and I guess because officially she should be betrothed to his third son he caught that's adultery and so he 
calls her out as being immoral and he's so harsh, isn't he? Let her be burnt. So apparently that's a step up from stoning. So normally that would require her to be stoned, but in special circumstances of outrage, then it, so yeah. How often do we do that? When we're guilty, our outrage to others is even more. But then she comes with the things and identifies herself and yeah, he comments, she is more righteous than I. So he's convicted of his sin, amazingly, and um, then brings her back in. Would it be fair to say, do you think that the, the humiliation he suffers here is the beginning of the change in him that we then see fully later on when he's prepared to stand in Benjamin's stead, when he then really does care about family relationships and the grief that he's caused to his father and so he's prepared to be the substitute and he then is a beautiful picture of Jesus isn't he a few chapters later um but yeah I find that really helpful to think his humiliation here is the means God uses to start the change in his heart and how that's um an encouragement isn't it when our lives are difficult or when our sin is public or when um, we're found out um, that actually that's the time that God can use us to change us. Yeah, because it can be the opposite, can't it? Sometimes humiliation leads us to do worse things or um, want to humiliate others or want, you know, whereas, yeah, we see that Judah takes her in. I think the implication is that he takes her in, in, in verse 26, he did not sleep with her again. Um, I guess that means that he, she was part of his household, but um, it's just a clarification that he wouldn't be able to sleep with her because she was also kind of his daughter-in-law. But yeah, it's, it's, I feel like shame and honour is a kind of background theme in this chapter. I don't know what you guys think. You know, you've got Onan who wants to be seen to do the honourable thing, but in secret is not. But then you get Judah, who did do a shameful thing, I guess, in front of his community, maybe he felt shame at what he'd done by visiting a shrine prostitute. Like he's very much called out in front of his community. But then he does do the right thing, doesn't he, after that, and does the honorable thing by bringing her into his family. I mean, you might say that he was forced to, but still, it does, it's kind of redeemed, isn't it, by the fact that then she has these twins, and one of them is called Perez. And we know that Perez is in the line of David and then Jesus. So, yeah, it's so messy and so horrible. And yet there's this, this fine, like, thread, this golden thread going through this story, isn't it? That there's hope for people like this because Jesus is going to come out of this family. And also encouragement that there's hope for people like both of these people, not just Tamar and, you know, not just Judah, but everyone. There is hope for every person. I found this um, little section so helpful in helping me, well, this whole chapter really helpful in helping me understand the gloriousness of what God does to Judah in later chapters and how he changes it. Like, I don't think when we skipped this chapter that I fully understood the level of disgustingness, depravedness, hypocrisy that Judah had stooped to and therefore how much more incredible the change is by the end of Genesis 
like Jill said, when he steps into Benjamin, like it just put a whole new perspective on for me, but also made me realize actually there is hope for everyone. <laughs> what, and we might not like that. You know, some people might read this chapter and think, actually, I don't want Judah to do well. I don't want him to be saved. What he's done is despicable. And yet by the end, there is total redemption. And I just, yeah, I've found this chapter really helped me see that grace that God has for sinners. I guess you, the change comes, doesn't it? As up to that point, it's, it's all been hidden, his sin's hidden, and he's getting away with it. And he point, you know, and that's a massive theme, isn't it? Right, like you said, Helen, right from Eden, we, we hide and we point away from ourselves. And so in this chapter, he's hidden his sin, hidden his sin, pointed at Tamar. And suddenly here, he begins to own it and be honest. And the light, it's like the light shines into his heart, doesn't it? And he can own his sin and then change is possible. And so it's so encouraging, isn't it, for us, just how important it is to own our sin and bring it into the light rather than hide it. If we, if we want to be, cha- if we want God to change us, that mm. actually once that light shines and he says, she's more righteous than I, then God can start to help him change. Uh, just to add to that, that like that um, several times it's mentioned that the eyes of the Lord saw and the Lord sees our sin, doesn't he? And whether we want to hide it or not, he sees our hearts. And so in a way, bringing it to him does not reveal it to him. It reveals, it helps us to, to open it up for ourselves and be set free from um that hiding (laughs) yeah he uncovers our shame and gives us clothes that we don't deserve right yeah I guess talking about God seeing I really love another aspect of God seeing in this is Tamar who was alone and vulnerable and rejected and scandalized I love that he sees her and he brings her in and then she ends the passage, she ends the story with these two sons. And I know it's not the most important thing that she has the baby that she desires. I mean, we've talked about the fact that she wanted a baby also for other reasons to be part of this line. But I do love the fact that at the end, she's not alone anymore. She has these two children um, and she's not despised anymore. And I love that, that, sense that you get that God really cares about these things and he sees and he changes things for us and he just yeah I love the gentle way that he's done that for Tamar here like yeah it didn't happen through the best means but it happens doesn't it and she's got these beautiful babies and I I guess she doesn't see does she what we see that that long arc of redemption that actually she's part of the lineage of Christ and that is a massive thing isn't it for her um but actually just taking that long view of because there'll be there's some people isn't there and there's some circumstances where you don't see it in your lifetime where you don't feel vindicated but actually trusting that god's justice is is a long justice and a true and a right justice and that one day everything is made right and how great as well that we don't have to be bound to that Um, feeling of vengeance or revenge you know I loved that analogy that Juliet used of sort of that freedom that that you know that secretness 
um, and then suddenly you're unleashed, like you're freed from those chains, from that bondage. And when I think about um, uh, vindication or, um, yeah, vengeance and that kind of thing, like how that can eat away at you. It can eat away <laughs> at your very soul, can't it? You know, and, you and, and yet we can rest easy in the knowledge that, yes, we may not see justice be done in this lifetime, but either way, justice has been done. Hallelujah. Anything else, ladies? Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks for joining us this week as we looked at Genesis 38. Bye. Bye. Bye.